0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. For each episode of the podcast, we choose an interesting new book, and we talk with the author about that book and about some of the deeper issues in the study of sports. This week's guest is historian Stephen Rees. Steve is a longtime member of the history faculty at Northeastern Illinois University in Chicago and he is the author of several books on American sports history, focusing particularly on baseball and other sports in urban life at the turn of the century. Here in the U.S., Steve has been a leading figure in the development of sports history as an academic field. He edited the Journal of Sport History for several years, and recently he has edited two major reference works on the history of American sport, in our interview, Steve does tell us about the development of the field of sports history in the four decades that he has been doing research. And of course, we discuss his newest book, The Sport of Kings and the Kings of Crime, Horse Racing, Politics, and Organized Crime in New York, 1865-1913, to 1913, published by Syracuse University Press in 2011. I have to admit that I'm not much of a horse racing fan, but that's okay because Steve acknowledges that he's not much of a fan either. What drew him to the subject of his book and what made it interesting to me is that it's not so much about the sport as about the networks of wealthy New Yorkers, politicians, and criminal types who were connected with the tracks and the betting parlors. This is a colorful story of American history full of intriguing characters and surprising details. I hope you enjoy the interview. My guest this week on New Books in Sports is Steve Reese. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Oh, glad to be here. And Steve, so you are one of the wise veterans in the academic field of, of sports history here in, in the States, and I would say that you're somewhat distinct among, among your generation of sports historians in that you researched a topic in sports history for your, for your Ph.D. dissertation. This dissertation became your first book on on baseball in the progressive era of U.S. history, and this was published back in 1980. So, to start, I'll ask if, if you can give us something of a, a picture of the beginnings of the of the field of sports history. You know, back in the in the late 70s and early 80s, was this a, a challenge as an academic historian to establish your your research uh, niche in in the history of baseball and sport?
1: Well, it sure was. Um- when I would tell people I was writing a dissertation on baseball, first thing that he would laugh at me. And uh, in the profession, it was looked down upon. It was something people was, were told to avoid, that it wasn't good for a career. Uh, very senior people, like Marshall Smelzer was secretly writing a biography of Babe Ruth. He was a very noted historian of the early 19th century, but he was afraid his reputation would go down the tubes when people found out he was doing something on baseball, which... For most scholars, it was considered beneath contempt. Uh, this was not a serious topic. This was something everybody knows about baseball. So why would uh, an academic spend time you know, studying such a form of popular culture that everybody knows about? It seemed to be um, not the way to go. It seemed to be a career killer. But fortunately, I had some professors who were more open-minded, and I also had a role model. I guess everyone needs a role model. And there was a fellow who was the, R, the resident director of my dorm the first years in grad school, whose name is Robin Lester, and he was working on a dissertation on sports. And in fact, it became a book. It was a study of football at the University of Chicago. And so this gave me some impetus to, uh, to give it a shot. And then when I was trying to come up with a topic, I talked with friends about various things I was doing. And, you know, they said, you know, you are interested in baseball. Why don't you, you know, think about that? I've been doing research on occupations like the police and medicine. And so I was interested in the history of occupations. I was in studying urban history, and one of my professors, Richard Wade, thought that it was you know, a very viable topic, and so um, I gave it a shot. I thought also, you know, this is a time like today when it was very, very hard to get a job, and I thought, well, I'm not the greatest you know graduate student, but maybe I'll be a little different, and maybe by being different it would give me a, a leg up. And so I said, okay, let's see what we could do.
0: So talking to other uh, scholars of your, your generation who've uh, done work on sports, one thing that they've told me, and I'll ask if this was the case with you, is that while the profession looked down somewhat on research in sports, whenever they would go to academic conferences or they would give talks on their subject, it, it actually drew a lot of interest. There were, there were a lot of people who wanted to hear papers on sports.
1: Well, I was able to get, when I was still a graduate student, opportunity to give papers at major conferences. Which was exciting. And then it also turned out that there was an organization just getting going, a little on, not to the mainstream. It was called the North American Society for Sport History, which was really founded by uh, people in physical education who were doing studies in sport history. And so one of the first papers I ever gave was at the actual first major meeting they had in 1973. The next thing they did was they organized a journal called the Journal of Sport History, and my first publication, one of my first publications was in the Journal of Sport History. So I piggybacked on their leadership and um, was able to begin to get some, you know, some recognition and some attention. But yes, this was a topic people always were interested in hearing about. Uh, the public was interested in hearing lectures on, on sports, and conferences were open to the idea of, of doing, doing sports dissertation.
0: So now, of course, the field is is much different, and uh, you've taken something of an overview of the field in recent years, Steve, as the as the editor of major reference works on American sports history. So I'll ask you, from that vantage point, what is your view of the academic study of of sports history today? What what strengths of the field do you see, and and I'll ask as well, what are there areas where you'd like to see uh, more development in the field?
1: Well, one of the things that definitely developed by the mid-1980s was you already began to see people going for dissertations in history as opposed to physical education. And people who were doing this were not uh, the weaker sorts of people, but very outstanding scholars. And so by the early 1990s, you begin to see outstanding work, really first-rate scholarship both in analysis and in research in the field. So we are attracting really, very smart people. Uh, What you didn't see was people being hired to teach sport history. Uh, In fact, I remember one of my colleagues, and he had letters from his professor who said he is not a sport historian, although obviously he was writing a dissertation on the history of college football, because there was that that problem. Uh, Only recently there actually is a position going to be filled at University of Wisconsin, a chair for a junior person in the history of baseball, which was funded by Bud Selig. So, this is all new. This is people who are writing on baseball or sports, whatever sports it is, uh, they can say they are a sport historian and they can get uh, an academic position, although maybe not necessarily titled sport history, but they could be teaching urban history, cultural history, economic history, what have you. Now, there is a big literature on sport history. There wasn't in the 1970s, barely any, in all the 1980s. But in 2010, 2012, there was a substantial literature on sport history. Articles appear in all the most important journals, Journal of American History, American Historical Review, uh, you name it, uh, there's sport history there. Uh, The topics that are being covered um, run the gamut. I mean, there's nothing that that, uh, people don't do. Uh, They study sexuality in sports. They study politics in sports, crime in sports. Uh, More and more sports that were never being examined, are being examined. For example, horse racing, which is the subject of, <laughs> of my last book. So the, the breadth and depth is getting wider and wider. There's more interest in comparative study. Uh, there are journals coming out from many languages, Spanish, Portuguese, German. Uh, there are journals published in England and Australia, all over the world uh, in sport history. So in terms of the academic interest in it, it it's booming, and it continues to grow all the time. So this is now mainstream history, and it's included now in all the textbooks. They always will cover this. But I remember 30 years ago, 25 years ago, there were still textbooks that told the myth of Abner Doubleday as if it was truth. (laughs) So finally, this has gotten cleaned up, too.
0: Well, we we should turn to your book on, on horse racing, and I'll ask first... Why Why horse racing? Why? Why uh, you, Most of your, your other books, your monographs, have been devoted to baseball. So why, uh, why a book on horse racing?
1: Well, that's a good question, which people ask me all the time. <laughs> and they assume, you know, I'm a big horse racing fan. And I'm not. I've almost never gone to the races. <laughs> I don't like to gamble. I don't like to lose. And I don't like to see horses running around in circles. It just doesn't do it for me. One of the reasons I did this was it was based on some prior research I had done for my book, City Games, where I was very interested in the uh, relationship between professional sports, politics, and crime. And so I had done some reading for that book. I did a lot of reading for that book. And I found out that at the turn of the century, we could focus on three major professional sports, baseball, boxing, and horse racing. One of the things they had in common was they were commercial and they were jobs to make money. Uh, baseball was seen as a, totally above these other games. It had a um, an ethic, an ethos that symbolized all that was best in America. You know, motherhood, apple pie, and Major League Baseball. Baseball built character. Uh, baseball improved health. Baseball promoted community. But what they also had in common was the way the business was operated. For one thing, I discovered all these major sports were very involved in politics. You couldn't run horse racing unless you had political clout. You couldn't be a boxing promoter unless you had political clout. You couldn't be a successful baseball owner unless you had political clout. Now, the reasons why they needed the clout different. In the case of boxing and horse racing, which is what piqued my interest, was well, these were sports that were widely illegal. Boxing was universally illegal until the 1890s. Horse racing in the turn of the century was closed in virtually every locality of consequence, except for Kentucky and in Maryland, it was, uh, without political clout, it was very, very hard to protect your business because it was so widely illegal. Another thing they had in common uh, was there was lots of gambling. Baseball was more surreptitious. You didn't hear a lot about it. You knew there were signs in the ballpark saying, you know, no gambling. And the general public assumed there wasn't very much gambling on baseball, although there was. <clears throat> there was a lot of gambling between fans. They would gamble whether or not a ball would be caught. In fact, supposing the minor leagues in the West... There were episodes when people would shoot off guns to scare the outfielders so they wouldn't catch them all. And, of course, we know the big scandal, the Black Sox scandal of 1919. The case of boxing and horse racing is a different story. Their gambling was central to the sports, and, in fact, in horse racing, there was no sport without gambling. When the uh, authorities clamped down on horse racing, when the reformers fought it because of the gambling, uh, the, the sport disappeared. Without gambling, there was no horse racing. So this gets me then to what comes next, the underworld. And the underworld was very, very involved, especially in horse racing and in boxing. In fact, in boxing in the 1920s, most of the big fighters were owned by by gangsters, by the mob. In the case of horse racing, gambling was essential to the sport. As I said, without gambling, there would be no horse racing. And originally at the tracks, there was bookmaking, there were auction pools, there were parimutuals. And so some of these people who were involved in the gambling were underworld characters. Going back to um, uh, John Morrissey, who ties all this together because Morrissey, who was the first American boxing champion, uh, was the biggest gambler in New York by profession. He was also a member of Tammany Hall. He was even elected to Congress. So here all these things come back together and together. With horse racing, a lot of the gambling is off the track. And even today, a lot of it is off the track. But until the 1970s, any gambling off the track is criminal. It's illegal. It's always illegal. And when there's illegality, you have illicit enterprises, you have the underworld, you have organized crime, you have syndicate crime, and they're very involved in in the whole enterprise. And so this connection between this nexus between crime, sports, politics, uh, and not in business, that's what piqued my interest. And plus on top of that, there basically had been nothing ever written about horse racing other than um, books for fans, books about um, who owned the horses, the thoroughbreds, the successes, but nothing about the real business of horse racing. And this seemed to me a huge, huge gap in the literature on American sport, in fact, in American history. Horse racing, in fact, was the first American sport. goes back to the colonial times. It was the biggest sport in the colonies in early America. And in fact, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, it was the biggest spectator sport in America, I was shocked to find out. Mm -hmm. So this seemed to me crying for someone to examine. And so I said, well, I'm going to do it.
0: Well, I'll jump in there and ask then if, if there is such a, uh, a big gap in the literature that in sports history that, that horse racing is not discussed. Why, why did you focus this book on, on horse racing specifically in New York? Why not horse racing in the United States?
1: Well, there in the is a story. <laughs> <laughs> Originally, you know, following up my Richard Wade mentorship, I wanted to write a comparative study. And in fact, that's what I was doing. Uh, I decided that for most of its history, and until the modern 20th century, uh, horse racing was not <coughs> Excuse me, in, in Louisville, which it later does become. Louisville was a, a minor tra- minor area of racing throughout the century. The number one area was New York City. New York City had like half a dozen tracks. There were another half a dozen in New Jersey. The biggest races at the turn of the century were in New York. The most infamous horses, the biggest owners, they were all in New York. In the West, the center of racing was Chicago, and having studied it more and more, some of it becomes a little surprising because Chicago had no horse racing at all from 1905 to the mid-1920s. It was totally bad. But in the 19th century, it was the center of racing in the Western United States. It had the most famous racing track in America, the Washington Park Racetrack, Um, the American Derby, which was just about the biggest race in America, a $50,000 prize in 1893 was in Chicago. So I thought that New York and Chicago were the major centers of racing, so I, I said, this is a good, good point to study. And I knew Chicago's history as a center of crime and politics. There was a, no grain around that. The problem ultimately came out was that when I tried to get the book published, it was originally a study of Chicago and New York from the mid-19th century to about 1910. It was very long. Nobody wanted to publish such a long book. So I said, I've got to do something or I'll never get going. <laughs> And so I said, well, what's the best way to do this? And one thing that gave me an impetus was I heard someone was writing a dissertation on racing in New York. And I think, well, I'll do the New York book first, beat that person, and get to the Chicago next. So, Way to ruin reason,
0: some poor graduate student's uh, life. I know, I
1: know, I know, I <laughs> know. So for the most pragmatic reasons of all, I said, I'm going to do the New York book first. That part is really complete. As I was discovering with Chicago... The horse racing thing in Chicago becomes a black hole, because after it was banned for 20 years, it's going to resume, and it's going to resume in the city which had the biggest gambling business going on in horse racing. Chicago is the center of the racing wire uh, by a Chicago gangster named Mount In the late 20s, racing in Chicago resumes, and it becomes a humongous. They have like half a dozen tracks there, including Arlington Park, which is still one of the biggest tracks in America. And so I starts a whole new kettle of fish. And I said, oh, no, if I do Chicago, like, where am I going to stop? So then I discovered in the Chicago in the 30s, the business is so big that they actually passed a law, or tried to pass a law, and the state legislature passed one to legalize bookmaking. Bookmaking was humongous in Chicago. You know, the pool rooms were humongous. Chicago was the site of the famous movie Sting, one of the great movies mm-hmm. um, of the 1970s. Which is about a pool room in the underworld. so I said this story never seems to end in Chicago and so that's why I didn't do Chicago yet and eventually I hope to do chi- finish off Chicago.
0: Well let's go to the let's go to the beginning of the New York book <laughs> and uh, uh, you do talk about so the book focuses on on racing in New York from from really the mid 19th century to the early 20th century but you do start with with an overview of horse racing from the colonial period into into the early republic, and this is something of a period of, of up and down for the fortunes of ho- horse racing in, in America. Can you, can you talk about how did horse racing begin in the, in the colonies, and uh, what brought its ups and downs in the early republic?
1: Well, horse racing in the colonial era was pretty much up. Uh, they tell stories of horse racing as early as 1607 at Jamestown, but it becomes very big by the late 1600s among the rich, the great planters of colonial Virginia. Not everyone in those days had a horse, and horses were used for work. In fact, the horses that they raced were work horses that they did other stuff with. These were horses that raced short distances, <clears throat> and today we call them quarter horse races, which is very popular in New Mexico. And owners of great plantations who were leading very risky lives, um, they grew tobacco, which was a risk whether or not the crop would come in. They shipped it to England. They hoped pirates didn't steal it. Uh, They hoped their relatives in in England didn't cheat them. Uh, They hoped that there was a market when they brought it in. So they were used to high-risk stuff. And for their fun, they enjoyed high-risk things as well. And one of these was betting on horse races. And typically, these were horses the planters themselves owned, and they raced. And it might be informal. You know, you run into a planter down the road. It's like, I'll, I'll race you from this tree to that tree or we'll meet Saturday and we'll take a race from uh, from one tavern to the end of the road. And they would bet on it. They would bet uh, tobacco. And everyone was welcome to come to see these races, and these owners got to show off how fabulous they were. And if they had a problem, they could actually go to court. So if you didn't show up for the race or you didn't pay your debt, you could sue in court and you would win. You would collect, unlike today. This is a way of showing their status to the community, uh, and gaining respect, and uh, they were very comfortable with it. One restriction was that legally you could not bet with a lower-class person. That was against the law. By the early 1700s, they begin to build formal race tracks. And by 1730s and 1740s, there are tracks in Charlestown, in uh, Williamsburg, even in New York, even in Philadelphia. The only place where tracks really, you never see, were in New England. Yeah, the Puritans wouldn't go for the the gambling sport. By the 1750s, uh, formed, these tracks are owned by jockey clubs. They begin importing thoroughbreds. And this changes the sport dramatically. The thoroughbreds are imported from England, they're Arabian horses, and they are bred to run. They're not bred to work. The idea was you bring in this, these thoroughbreds and you use them for breeding better horses with your work horses, but that was mainly rhetoric to a large extent. The style of racing changes. Now, instead of these short races, Thoroughbreds are big and strong. So they race four miles. And then increasingly, they, they, these four mile races are just heats. So you have to run two four miles to win, or out of three races or four races or whatever. Uh, everyone is going to the track now in the mid 1700s. Uh, in the 1770s, you take a look at George Washington's diaries. He's at the track all the time. Jefferson's at the track. Everybody who's anybody goes to the track. Members of the club have prestige, they have status, they're highly regarded. What hurts the sport is the coming of the revolution. It becomes a political matter. In Pennsylvania, for example, uh, they ban racing because they think this is inappropriate behavior for a Republican citizen. This is aristocratic. This is British. We Americans don't do that kind of stuff. And so during the revolution, it begins to lose its popularity. Some of the horses are killed in the war to The sport the And when the war is over, there's still a strong sense, especially in the North, that it's an inappropriate thing to do. But it becomes popular in the South again, and in the West. <clears throat> but in, in, in New York, there's, there are laws against horse racing, and there's basically no, virtually no horse racing in New York until the early 1820s, when the idea that um, the thoroughbreds improves the breed, is good for the farmer, you need to show it's a good horse by racing it, comes back into uh, <clears throat> legality. Prominent people in America, big supporters of racing. One of the most famous was Andrew Jackson who before the War of 1812 was one of the biggest gamblers in America. And in fact, he took racing very seriously. He fought a deadly duel uh, in 1806 over a horse race that uh, led to uh, the death of a man named Dickinson, who was the preeminent duelist in America. And it's a very famous story because uh, Jackson knew he couldn't beat Dickinson in a fair fight. And so Jackson showed up with a big overcoat, and he figured... I'll let Dickinson take the first shot. He'll hit me. God willing, he won't kill me because he can't figure out where my vital organs are. I will stand there with the bullet in my body, and I will kill him. And that's just what happened. Years later, Jackson gave up his um, horses for a while after 1816, when he got more into politics. But after he went to the White House, he brought his horses with him. So this was big, popular, and prestigious. The sport declines in the North. After 1837, with the Depression, it all resumes, however, and remains strong in the South, I should say, especially New Orleans, which becomes a new center of racing up to the Civil War. And that's where my book begins.
0: And then, so what What brings about uh, uh, the establishment of popularity after the Civil War?
1: Uh, <clears> the <throat> gall of credit goes to a man I mentioned before, whose name was John Morrissey, who was very well known as the American Boxing Champion, which is in many quarters, not the most prestigious prestigious occupation, uh, who had become a preeminent gambler in New York. And he decided he could make a lot of money if he promoted gambling in Saratoga Springs, which is where all the rich Americans used to go for the summer. And so he set up a racetrack there in 1863 with some very prominent uh, New Yorkers. It was a big success. And with that success, uh, some of those prominent New Yorkers particularly Leonard Jerome, who's big in Wall Street, decides we can revive the sport in the North after the war. The war is over now. Uh, It's time to have a good time. And it's time for the rich to enjoy themselves and show off. And so he and his friends set up the American Jockey Club, not a very modest name, the American Jockey Club. And they set up a track in uh, what is now the Bronx, originally in Westchester, called Jerome Park. The head of the track is... uh, August Belmont, one of the biggest financiers in America, he is the head of the National Democratic Party, the members of the Jockey Club, are about 800 or so, are some of the rich, include all the richest men in New York, not all the 800 are very rich, but the ones who run the track, the uh, Board of Governors, they are the richest men in New York, they're the richest men in New Jersey and the surrounding areas. And their status, their prestige, helps make this sport now something everyone has to do, everyone who's anybody. The opening day, the biggest guest of the opening day is Ulysses Grant, General of the Army, hero of the war. They build a jockey club, a clubhouse for the members, which are all all the fanciest appurtenances, uh, great dining, uh, great recreation, great sociability. And so, beginning in 1866 in New York, if you want to be somebody, you want to join this jockey club and participate in what they're doing. And then after that, other similar clubs are formed in other major cities, um, including Chicago, uh, Washington, Louisville, in emulation of the American Jockey Club mm-hmm. and Jerome Park.
0: So you had mentioned before there was at uh, at any given time in the 19th century, roughly about a half dozen tracks in New York as well as uh, in New Jersey. So were these? This is coming
1: after. The
0: 1870s. After the 1870s, getting
1: 1880 and then to 1910.
0: So, so with that many tracks, uh, this this couldn't have remained uh, simply an, an upper class entertainment. Uh, were there were there working class people who went to the tracks?
1: Well, that, that's one of the interesting aspects about horse racing, is that it was a sport originally run by the elite for the elite, but everyone was welcome to go, especially once they charged admission. It wasn't easy to get to the tracks in the mid-19th century or the early 19th century. They were very far away from um, where people lived. So, for example, for those big races in the 1820s, 30s, and 40s, which took place in Queens, New York, to get there was a major project. It was very, very expensive. And yet working-class people went. I think these were people who saved their money. These were often bachelors who had money to spend and and then bet on. Because if you didn't have money to bet, you weren't going to go to the track. By the late 19th century, it's still struggling getting support from the middle class, because there's still a strong feeling that this gambling thing is just wrong and, and shouldn't be participating. But among a lot of the working class, especially the Irish, uh, who were very big into gambling, and then later other groups like Jews were very big into gambling, going to the races became, became popular. And what made it more accessible was, first of all, better transportation. So by the 1890s, you could go from, say, New York to Brooklyn, where most of the tracks were located, in an hour, and it didn't cost, um, it didn't cost all that much. But also what is coming in now is, in addition to these elite jockey clubs, which have snob appeal, which have expensive admissions, um, which have very expensive horses running and big purses, you have the rise of different kind of track. And these are tracks which are proprietary tracks. They're out-and-out out businesses. Now, the owners of jockey clubs, the elite clubs, they didn't intend to lose money. They hoped to at least break even or make a small profit. <clears throat> and they usually agreed to limit their profit and reinvest <clears throat> in the track. The proprietary tracks were simply out to make money. And they were run by guys who were, uh, in one case, very wealthy butchers, uh, in several cases, gamblers, bookmakers, uh, always politicians. And they were there to make a big profit. In the case of Chicago, there was one case, one track called the Gamblers' Track, which was run by the um, biggest gambler in Chicago, Mike McDonald, who was often considered the head of first head of organized crime in America. Similar case, similar story was going on in many of the New Jersey tracks. A couple of the Brooklyn tracks are, pro, are run as a business. Their admissions are cheaper. Sometimes they were letting people for free because they want them to come and bet mm-hmm. and spend their money that way.
0: So when did the, when did the occupation of, of the bookmaker, you had mentioned bookmakers earlier, when did, when did bookmakers become involved in racing?
1: Well, before the Civil War, the gambling was always done basically between two parties. Uh, Fred and Tom get together, they say, I think my horse is good. They say, yeah, I like this horse. They'll make a bet between themselves. In the 1860s, you begin to see actually guys going into this as a career, people who are handling the bookmaking, handling the betting, rather. Uh, one of the first of these was a, a veterinarian named Underwood who uh, lived in New Orleans. And he was very involved in the gambling in the 1860s at um, Saratoga. Well, the first way they did this was using what is called the auction pool method, where they would actually operate like an auction. And they'd say, okay, there are five horses in this race. How much am I bid on a particular horse, A, B, C, or D? And invariably, the person with a lot of money would get to pick the horse they wanted and then usually that horse would win. So that was good for people who had a lot of money, but it wasn't good for everybody else. Another system they tried, which wasn't popular, although it was a good system, was the paramutuals, which come in the 1870s and 1880s. And in this system, the track runs the betting. Often they would give a license to an individual to set up odds and use a machine to determine the odds as money was brought in usually two to five dollars on a bet. But the system that really gained popularity for most tracks in the late 19th century was actually what we call the bookmaker. He would be a guy who had a slate, he'd write odds down on the slate, and people would come up and bet with him based on those odds. And he would have guys walking the track seeing what other guys were setting up as their, book, as their odds, and he might adjust his uh, as they went on. He tried to guarantee himself a profit, usually he took five percent out of the uh, money bet, and the rest would go to the uh, the people betting, and this became the most popular form of betting on the tracks. Off the tracks, one option was betting with a bookmaker who uh, lived in your neighborhood. Maybe you found them on a candy store or a saloon, and he would set up odds for you. Or in the downtown areas, they had uh, more extravagant facilities. They were called pool rooms. <clears throat> Sometimes we miss, we confuse this with a place where billiards is played, which really is a pool hall. And by a pool room, they meant they pooled the bets that were made. And they operated as bookmakers, too. They would set odds. Some of these pool rooms are very elegant. You may remember in the movie The Sting, how fancy the setup there was. These were located in downtown areas, usually clerks, maybe skilled workers, or more well-to-do people would bet there. We have pictures of pool rooms in the 1890s and most everyone who went there was very well dressed they probably had a lot more money uh, and they may be getting drinks you know, uh, well serviced a uh, more upper, upper status kind of atmosphere and these were run by guys who were professional bookmakers often supported or financed by organized crime
0: and so were they connected to the track then and, and say starting out in the 19th century by telegraph or what
1: yeah, this, this is a key part of the story, is how they got their information. Originally, uh, they didn't have phones, so they didn't call it. They got it through wire, the telegraph. And in 1889, business this was actually a business now of Western Union. In fact, it becomes Western Union's single most profitable enterprise is selling news from the racetracks to anyone who wants it. It could be a saloon, it could be a newspaper, it could be a pool room. And Western Union made millions of dollars until about 1905 by selling this service. This got them into some hot water with the the tracks, because the tracks were getting a minimal amount of money from Western Union, sometimes nothing at all. And so periodically, the tracks might try to stop this. And when Western Union couldn't operate, the underworld came up with various gimmicks on how to send the information. And one of the most... (laughs) interesting Ways they did it was they'd send in women who would uh, put um, come with birds under their skirts and they would add a message to the bird's leg and send it off these homing pigeons back to the uh, connector, the, who would send, send them information back onto the, the pool rooms. By the 1900s, they began to begin moving to phones. <clears throat> this service got a little dicey, and in 1905, Western Union went out of the business. Uh, it was pushed by a lot of the directors of the company, including a woman named Helen Gould, whose father had been one of the leading organizers of Western Union, the notorious Jay Gould. And she was trying to make up for what Daddy had done in his career. So Western Union went out of the business, but the wire service continues under different guises. Western Union always will send a message, but they're not in the business anymore. They say, well, we can, everyone is entitled. In fact, we were required by law, as a common carrier, to send messages to people who pay us. And where they send it to, it's not our business. So that's how Western Union kept their hands clean. And by uh, 1911, it's taken over by the Chicago gambler, Montanis. And he basically monopolizes the informational service of racing news throughout the United States until he actually retired in 1927 with his boots on. Uh, He was afraid Al Capone was putting the squeeze on him. And he sold out to Mo who will do this for the next 13 years until he goes to jail.
0: So you had mentioned, we talked about before, prior to the Civil War, uh, the fortunes of of horse racing in America had their ups and downs, and and this pattern is repeated after the Civil War. And uh, so I'll ask you to give us a sketch looking from the mid-19th century into the early 20th century. What were the arguments for horse racing, Uh, and then what were the arguments against it, and who were the opponents of horse racing?
1: One of the main arguments, which I think a lot of people thought was uh, flawed, was that you needed horse racing to test the ability of these thoroughbreds, and then we would take these thoroughbreds and breed them with other horses to improve equines in America. And I think scientifically what the thoroughbreds were good for uh, is not going to help you as a farmer pulling a wagon carrying your hay to market. But that was one of the big arguments in favor of it. Uh, another argument in favor of it is that this is what people in Europe were doing. Horse raising was extremely popular in Europe, in Russia, in Austria, in France, in England. And we Americans should you know, be free to do what we want to do, especially we rich people who want to emulate the rich people of Europe. So for the rich people, this was uh, a proper form of behavior. It was, it was uh, good for our social status. The arguments against horse racing were actually much sounder. One argument, which we haven't talked about today, was that horses could be abused. Horses, not all the owners were honest. Sometimes they would uh, give the horses uh, drugs. Uh, Later on, electricity began used. They might be jolting them with electricity. They were racing them when they were very young. A lot of horses were racing when they were two years old. The jockeys were very, very young. They were 12, 13-year-olds. People who weighed under 80, 90 pounds were racing horses. This is very dangerous. Racing a thoroughbred is a very dangerous activity. So it was bad for the animals and bad for human beings. So it was an ASPCA issue. Of course, another part of it, the historic problem, was it's gambling. <clears throat> Without gambling, there's no horse racing. And Americans, going back to the Puritans, had a big problem with gambling. Americans believed you made money by working hard, you earn your money. Uh, gambling seemed to be a way to make money without working. It seemed to violate the Ten Commandments. It was sinful. It was immoral. It led to worse uh, crimes. It facilitated the growth of organized crime, which was growing in the late 19th century. In <laughs> some cases, laws, well, widely, laws were passed against horse racing. And it took a lot of wheeling uh, and dealing to evade these laws in the late 19th century. Uh, people were basically winking at what was illegal. Nonetheless, in late nineteenth century, there were over three hundred tracks in America; over forty in Canada. So it's very, very popular. People enjoy gambling; they enjoy the wager, they enjoy the excitement, they enjoy testing their skill as uh, handicappers. But um, with the beginning of the late nineteenth century and then with the coming of the Progressive Era, increasingly now the laws are being enforced or made stricter against horse racing. In Chicago, for example, horse racing is stopped, 1905, it's stopped in St. Louis. In uh, New York, the states tried to stop horse racing. In the Constitution of 1895, it said there is no gambling allowed, period, which was thought to be the end to horse racing. And yet because of the political clout of the New York track owners and horsemen, they were able to evade the law for several years and keep on going, until in 1910, the tracks had to close because of uh, enforcement of the laws. Mm -hmm which left racing going on only in Maryland and Kentucky. Everywhere else, it was closed.
0: So I wanted to ask about this, because in reading the book, and, and a big part of the book is this association of crime and horse racing, but it, it seemed to me that, that the criminality surrounding horse racing was really a matter of a shifting line of the legality or illegality of gambling. So what was legal under one administration would then become illegal under the next is that is that an accurate view uh it's not that simple
1: Uh, in some cases that occurred well well, what often happened was the reformers would get enough influence to get the laws enforced Mm -hmm. now sometimes that meant from the state sometimes that meant from the local authorities like in new york or in chicago and in new york the local authorities basically never going to enforce the law this is their Tammany Hall. Tammany Hall is strongly involved with racing. Many of them, like the boss, Richard Croker, is one of the biggest horse races owners in America. One of his colleagues, uh, Sullivan, who's the number two man at Tammany Hall, is the head of the underworld involved in gambling off the track. So one way or another, there's a lot of interest from local politicians, in the case of Tammany Hall, in keeping it going. Their constituents want it. So in New York... Basically, from 1866, when it resumes, until 1910, the horse racing went on. In 1908, the reformers, led by Charles Evans Hughes, one of the most famous progressives in America, he got a law passed to stop horse racing. And what happens is, the law's on the books, and then in New York, they simply evaded. So for two years, horse racing still goes on, even though it's against the law. Eventually, in 1910, a stricter law is passed, and this law says, well, not only can there be no gambling, if there's any gambling on the track, we're going to take the owners to court and put them in jail. So that did it in New York. So it depended a lot on the local authorities, and the local authorities were often in cahoots with the, with the tracks. So as long as that existed, the tracks were able to operate. But it was a thing of going up and down, up and down. For A few years, it would go on, it would be stopped, it would go on again, stopped again. So horse racing has more of a cyclical history than, say, a sport like baseball, where everything seems to always be getting better and better and bigger and bigger. Horse racing things would go up, then we'd go down. like in boxing, up and go down.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: a lot of it depended on local administration and local rule.
0: Mm-hmm. And then so looking at the criminality is that uh, uh, there was violence involved with this. And you talk about one particular murder in, in 1912 of a bookmaker named named Herman Rosenthal. So so could you talk about that episode and, and what it shows us about this this linkage of politicians, local authorities, bookmakers, the owners of tracks.
1: The Rosenthal story was one of the most famous crime stories in early America. It, although today it's often forgotten, Rosenthal was a minor figure. He was uh, beyond some. Uh, <clears throat> he had some bookmaking businesses going on. He had some entertainment businesses going on. And the guy who was he was involved with was um, an inf- a prominent policeman named Lieutenant Becker who was head of basically a uh, a, a, a gambling squad, which was told by the commissioner, Weinlander Waldo, to use whatever was necessary to stop the gambling. And this meant beating up people, kicking in the doors, whatever it took. Uh, But it also turns out that Mr. Becker was also on the take. and He was very involved with the bookmakers. This was very common in New York. A lot of the police were getting payoffs from the underworld. A lot of the politicians were getting payoffs from the underworld. And, in fact, both Becker and um, Rosenthal were connected to one of the big bosses in New York, um, <clears throat> Sullivan, Dry Dollar Sullivan, who was protecting both of them. Well, Sullivan is very ill at this time. In fact, he will die soon thereafter. And so Rosenthal no longer has his protection. And Rosenthal says, I'm not going to pay Becker off. And so what Becker does, basically, is he hires some guys and bount- he kills Rosenthal. Uh, this case goes on for a few years, and Becker eventually is sent to the electric chair the first policeman ever to be executed by the state of New York. And so it's a very, very uh, prominent case. Actually, New York was mild when it came to violence compared to Chicago. <clears throat> in Chicago at this period, there were bombings of the racetrack. Hawthorne racetrack was bombed in 1902. Uh, Montennis, who we mentioned before, controlled the racing wire. He was involved with his rivals, not the authorities, but his rivals, between 40 and 50 bombings. 1908 and 1911. Uh, there was in most, years later in Chicago, in 1928, one of the big owners of horses there was a guy named Hertz, Hertz Rent-A-Car guy, yellow cab company, president of Wellington Racetrack. His, one of his barns was um, destroyed by fire. They lost 11 horses worth $200,000. These were killed by mobsters who were involved in a War going on between the Checker and Yellow Cab companies. Uh, so there was a lot of violence. In fact, in Chicago in the 1860s, a, a rider was actually killed on the track, uh, in, uh, involved with one of the prominent gangs in Chicago. So these guys took their problems to the track, and uh, but more importantly, the business of racing uh, was hindered by the violence that went on among the gangsters.
0: So, Steve, looking at the book, the one thing that is striking is that it's a it is a handsome book, and and so uh, I salute your publisher, Syracuse University Press, for uh, for a fine job with design and, and putting the book together. And I wanted to ask you about the the illustration on the cover, and I presume that you right. had a hand in, in choosing choosing right. the cover illustration. So, can you tell us about uh, about this painting that's on the on the cover, and, and why you selected that one?
1: Yeah, this is a Courier and Ives painting. Courier and Ives were very famous illustrators in, in the mid-late 19th century. And this picture is a picture of a race. It's called the Futur- Futurity, which was a race at Cheapside Bed Racetrack. <clears throat> Futurity uh, was one of the richest races in America. In fact, uh, in the late 19th century, prices were high $60,000 for the winner. The picture depicts... Uh, men to the finish line of the race in 1888, and one of the things that's very noticeable, especially by the way that we've cut the picture, was that the first two guys in the race are both African-American jockeys. And this was not by chance. And that's because in the late 19th century, African-Americans were extremely prominent, if not dominant, in horse racing. In Churchill Downs, for example, in the first running of the Kentucky Derby, there were 15 entrants, 14 of the horses were ridden by African-Americans. Uh, One of the top trainers at the track trained the winning horse was African-American. African-Americans were very, very prominent in this sport, as they had been for 100 years, going back to slave days. The leading jockey of the late 19th century, Isaac Murphy, was an African-American. And here the story gets sad, and it reflects the dominant theme in American sport when it comes to race, and that is African-Americans in the late 19th century, who were prominent in baseball and other sports, were largely forced out of the, the sports by jealous whites. And this is what happened in horse racing. And so by the early 1900s, there were very few African-Americans in the the position of jockey, a very well-paid position. Uh, Isaac Murphy was making $20,000 a year. And after 1905, there were no more African-Americans racing in the Kentucky Derby, and the few African-Americans who were still getting jobs, they went to Europe to maintain their occupation. Mm -hmm. So this picture really tells an important story about the Mm -hmm. nature of of sport in the late 19th century.
0: Mm And then you clearly see in the background that this is a, uh, this is an upper-class white audience in the, in the grandstand.
1: This is the Sheepshead Bay Race Track, which is one of the most prestigious tracks in the late 19th century. In fact, at the turn of the century, it probably had more higher purses than any track in America, probably had more tennis than any track in America. It was run by the biggest people in New York. So, yes, this was a very upper-class event. Mm-hmm.
0: So we're almost out of time, Stephen. One thing I wanted to ask you is, uh, you know, looking at all of the difference, you have a you have a nice map in the book that shows the locations of all the different different tracks uh, in in New York, in Brooklyn, the Bronx, Queens, in New Jersey. And and you said at the outset that you're not much of a racing fan, uh, but I wonder of of those of those 15 different tracks, only two, Belmont and Aqueduct, are are working now. As you did the research, did you think? I wish I would have been able to visit this this one track. Is there is there one of those old tracks that you wish you could have seen?
1: Uh, yeah, I would have liked to go to the Morris Park Race Track, which is in the Bronx, in Morris Park in the Bronx. <laughs> uh, this was a track built in 1889 by John Morris, who was a very very rich man. He was the own. He was a man who ran something called the Louisiana Lottery which is one of the most notorious businesses in America, which is actually the first major legal lottery in American history. He made millions of dollars from it. The track was fabulous. It had a fantastic clubhouse. Um, they had 60 bedrooms. They had the great, one of the greatest uh, restaurants in New York City. They had a great uh, ballroom. It would have been a marvelous place uh, to spend a day.
0: And so I'll ask Steve to finish up. uh, uh, You have the Chicago, the book on Chicago horse racing that you're working on. Do you have another project on the side that you're... Well, I just finished the second edition
1: of my book, uh, Sport and Industrial America, which is out now. And it was originally published by Holland Davidson, which was bought out by Blackwood. And so um, Blackwood's publishing it now. And Blackwood's also going to publish my uh, contributions to... uh, American sport history, one of the series, series on uh, contributions to various topics in sport history, in, uh, American history.
0: And you wrote in the in the preface to this book on horse racing in New York that you were working on this project for ten years. Is that right? Uh,
1: that was actually, I was being, uh, I was embarrassed. I've been working <laughs> on this forever. <laughs> so I have note cards to go back to nineteen seventy six.
0: Uh, uh. Well, I was going to say that this is encouraging for someone, as someone who's been working on a book project for now. It's it's getting close to a decade. Yeah, it's a decade. I I was encouraged by this to see that that these projects can actually be finished and and turn out to be impressive books. Thank you very much. So so you you gave me some uh, some encouragement just with that note that you had worked on this for a long time. But thanks, Steve, for coming on New Books and Sports. Oh, my
1: pleasure. Thank you for asking me.
0: You've been listening to an interview with Stephen Reese about his book, The Sport of Kings and the Kings of Crime, Horse Racing, Politics, and Organized Crime in New York, 1865 to 1913, published in 2011 by Syracuse University Press. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels and podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects like food, philosophy, journalism and politics. If you like what you heard here, please follow New Books and Sports on Twitter or friend us on Facebook. You can give us your feedback, offer suggestions, and find links to thoughtful sports writing from around the world. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thank you for listening and enjoy your week.